Well, good morning. I was reading an article the other day that said that the average adult hits their physical peak at the age of 30. And while that may be true for the general population, I hit my physical peak around the age of 13. It's one of those kids who hit puberty really early. And as a result of that, I peaked as an athlete, as a young teenager at Hobby Middle School. And while at Hobby, I played football and I got to play running back. And so that means I got to carry the football and I got to score a lot of touchdowns along the way. So I got to experience the joy of, of, of having my name said on the announcements in the morning, of being interviewed by esteemed publications like the Hobby Chronicle <laughs> and the 7th grade student council yearbook committee. But the reality was that there was a guy who was key to my success named, named Matt Rath. And Matt Rath played fullback. And if you don't know football very well, the fullback plays in front of the running back. And, and the, in essence, the job of the fullback is he goes to make a way for the running back to run, run through. He clears a path. That's his job. Because the running back's the one with the actual football. So the running back's the one, only one who can actually score the touchdown. And so when you think of God, he needs no fullback. He, he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. Jason said it in the prayer. He is perfectly capable. But in his great design of redemption, as part of his perfect plan, he designed it with a forerunner. He designed it with a, a messianic fullback, so to speak, who would go to prepare the way. And we met this forerunner all the way back when we began our study in the book of Luke in chapter 1. And his name is John. He's John the Baptist. And we see this in verse 17 of chapter 1. It says, It is he, being John, who will go as a forerunner before him, being Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So John is born with a mission. And his mission is to prepare the way of the Lord, to make a people ready for the Lord. But that mission does not begin right away. Very much like Jesus, John kind of disappears for three decades. And in these years of silence, we come to find out that he's spending the bulk of his time living in the wilderness. Verse 80 of chapter 1 says, And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And so this morning, we're going to look at that public appearance. Because as we come to chapter 3 this morning, what Luke's going to do is he's going to look at the ministry of John the, pa- uh, John the Baptist and show how he went to prepare a way. What it means to know him as the forerunner for the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and God's plan of redemption. So starting in chapter 3, verse 1, this is what it says. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch, which just means ruler of a fourth, was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene, 
In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. So Luke basically picks up the story and we fast forwarded to the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, who is the emperor of Rome. And so this puts us probably in the late 20s AD, roughly 30 years or so after the birth of John. And Luke goes on to mention a number of key figures who were living in that day and age. And so what Luke's doing here, is remember, he's a historian. So he's orienting us to the time period of where this is taking place. And he's also giving us a lens into what the spiritual and political climate was in that day. Because what, you, what Luke wants you to understand is that John the Baptist and Jesus were born into a time where things were not going well in the nation of Israel. It was a world of Roman occupation. It was a world of political corruption. And it was a world of religious perversion. And this is what's going on when Jesus and John are born. This is the air that they are breathing. This is the water that they are swimming in when they enter into time and space. But John the Baptist is separated from much of this because he's off by the Jordan. He's out in the wilderness. And so he's living this like ascetic, rural, simple life where he is not being stained by the, by the culture and the civilization of the day. And it's there where he receives the word from the Lord that his ministry time has come, that it's time to begin. And that brings us to verse 3, where in just one verse, it really encompasses the heart of John's ministry. It says, He came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So this is the heart of John's ministry right here in verse 3. And although it's short, I mean, it's just one verse, it's packed with stuff going on here. And so there's three things that I want to look at kind of one by one just from this one verse. And the first is I want to look at baptism and more specifically today, the baptism of John, John's baptism. And then I want to talk about how that connects to repentance And what is repentance? And then I want to connect, how does baptism and repentance connect to the forgiveness of sin? And so we're going to take a few minutes and camp out just on this one verse. And I think as we begin, it's important to kind of know the context of what had come before. And as part of their religious requirements of the day, Jews would often partake in ceremonial washings and cleansings. This was called the mikvah, which just means the gathered water. Okay, and so they would take part of these cleansings, whether they're going in the temple or is it a special time of the month for a female where they needed to get cleaned. And so this was kind of part of the rhythm of their life. And so when John begins baptizing people in the Jordan, it's important to know that the idea of a religious washing is not something new within Judaism. But the washing that John is calling people to was extremely new. And this was something that was extremely groundbreaking. Because this is not some ceremonial washing. This is a baptism of repentance. So it's a special baptism focusing on repentance. Now, there goes that word again, right? Repentance. We're going to hear it over and over in the Gospel of Luke. And as you've heard before, repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of action. So imagine I think I'm parked out there. And so after church, I'm walking this way to leave church. But then I remember, or somebody tells me, you're actually parked over there. 
And so I, I realize that. I have a change of mind. I repent. I stop. I turn around. And now I'm going to walk to where my car is actually parked. And so when, when John is calling on these Jews to repent and be baptized, what he is essentially telling them is you're going the wrong way. You're thinking about this all wrong. He says, you think you're okay because you're a Jew, because you're a child of Abraham, but you're wrong. You think you're okay. You think you can stand before the judgment seat of God because you have a religious calendar and because you practice sacrifices, but you're wrong. So John's telling them, you guys need to repent. And not just repent, you need to repent from the very religious system in which they are ensnared. Because the one who can actually forgive sin, the Lamb of God, the Messiah, he's coming. He's coming. And you better get ready. You better get right, because he's on his way. Now, interestingly enough, as an aside, there is a baptism in the Old Testament that somewhat mirrors what John is doing. But here's the thing. It was not a baptism for Jews. It was a baptism for Gentiles who wanted to become Jews. So they would go through a process where they would be circumcised and they would be baptized. And they would go into the water a Gentile and come out a Jew. So what? John the Baptist is implicitly or explicitly doing here is telling them, you're no different. You're no different than the Gentiles. So this is revolutionary stuff from John the Baptist. And so when we think of his baptism, it's connected to this repentance. And now I want to just quickly look at how baptism relates to the forgiveness of sin. And we're going to talk a little bit about Christian baptism next week and how that compares as we look at Jesus' baptism. But since this verse brings up this connection between baptism and the forgiveness of sins, I want to talk about it for a second because this is an area of, of great confusion within the church. There are some strands within Christianity that teach that baptism saves you or that the act of baptism is what forgives your sins. And this is often referred to as the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. I do not hold to that. And I think there's plenty of reasons in the scriptures why we should not hold to that. In Acts chapter 16, verse 30, the Philippian jailer says, sir, what must I do to be saved? And Paul replies, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. When we look at all the baptisms in the book of Acts, they are subsequent to saving faith. When Jesus is up on the cross and the, and the thief asks him to remember him, Jesus doesn't say, dude, I would love to. That would be ideal. But we can't get you baptized, so I'm sorry. You're just kind of out of luck. Even Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, listen to what he writes to the church in Corinth. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So if baptism is necessary for salvation, Paul has an interesting way of emphasizing it. 
Forgiveness of sin comes by faith when we turn to Christ and place our trust in him. And so if that is true, which I believe the scriptures are clear about, what do we do with a a number of these places in the scriptures that seem to really link salvation and baptism? Whether it's this verse or, you know, like Acts chapter 2 is kind of a famous one, 238, that says, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Like, what are we going to do with those? Well, without getting too technical, I do want to say, when you see the word for there, that's a really common word in the Greek scriptures, and it can have a couple of meanings. And so in regards to this text, when you read, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, one way to interpret that is to say that it is baptism that's providing forgiveness. That is one way to read it. But another way to interpret it is to see baptism as something that is the result of forgiveness. And we do this all the time, even in the English language, this word for. Think of uh, like my son comes to me and he says, hey, dad, I've got a headache. And I say, go get to Advil for your headache. Go take a couple Advil for your headache. The Advil is not producing the headache. The Advil is taken and in response or as a result of the headache. It's for the headache. So grammatically and exegetically, there are other ways to interpret these texts that I think are more consistent with the clarity of Scripture that over and over again teaches that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Secondly, I want to I talk about the historical piece to this, because I think it's worth exploring a little bit. Because while baptism is not the source of salvation, it is intimately linked to our salvation. And so follow me here. I want, if we had the, all the apostles here this morning, and they were sitting on the front row, and we invited one of them up, take your pick, Matthew, whatever, Peter, I'm going to pick John. So John comes up, I say, hey, John, are you saved at the moment of baptism? Or, or is baptism necessary for salvation? I think John would look at me and he would say, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not sure I understand. And I'll say, well, you, you, know, you know, do I need to be baptized to be saved? You're like, when I'm baptized, is that when I'm saved, John? Like, come on. And I, I really think he would say, I don't understand your question. Of course it is not necessary for you to be baptized to be saved, but why would you not be baptized? Why would you not do the one thing that Christ commanded us to do when we were making disciples that we were to go baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? What are you talking about? No, it doesn't save you, but it's right there. It's right there in the scriptures. Let me, let me illustrate this way. Imagine that I was going out for a guy's night. And I'm walking out the door, and I decide not to wear my wedding ring. And my wife, Victoria, grabs me before I walk out the door, and she says, Honey, 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 you, you left your wedding ring on the bathroom counter. Here it is. And I say, Hey, sweetie, um, I don't, it's not really necessary for me to wear it tonight. You guys, remember, remember this is a hypothetical illustration, Okay. <laughs> 
Now, the touchdowns, that was real, all right? The touchdowns was real. This is hypothetical. And I say, it's not necessary for me to wear it. And she's like, well, well, what do you mean? What do you mean it's not necessary? And I look and I say, babe, what's the point? What's the point of wearing my ring? I mean, we're married, aren't we? It's not like whether I go out with my ring on or I go out without my ring. It's not going to change the fact that we're married. So I just don't think it's that big of a deal. Well, clearly the big deal is that though a wedding ring does not make one married, it is the sign and the symbol of marriage. So it's incredibly valuable. I got this ring at James Avery for like 40 bucks. But its value is that it represents the greatest commitment in my life besides the one I have with my Lord. So it's pretty stinking important. It's a big deal. And the ring is so closely associated with marriage that to see a ring on someone's finger is to assume that they are married. And so when we think of Christian baptism, baptism is the sign and the symbol of our salvation. And historically speaking, it's not a sinner's prayer. It's not raising your hand. It's not coming to the front. Historically speaking, it's baptism. And I emphasize that because I wish people would have told me that. Because as many of you, you know, I didn't get baptized until I was an adult here at Wayside. But baptism is linked with our salvation, not as the source of our salvation, but as the sign and the symbol of our salvation. And that makes it a very big deal. Luke goes on now in verses 4 to 6 to remind us that John the Baptist is a big deal as well. And he does this by quoting from the prophet Isaiah, who had written about 700 years earlier. And this is what it says. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough roads smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. So once again, what Luke does is he quotes from Isaiah, which all the gospel writers do, and he applies it to John the Baptist, reminding us of what his mission is as the forerunner. He's the messianic fullback sent to clear the way. He's the lead blocker for Jesus. And notice in verse 6, which is actually a part of Isaiah that no other gospel writer quotes but Luke, it speaks of the global salvation that Messiah will bring. He says, all flesh will see the salvation of God. In other words, not just Jews, but all who call upon his name will be saved. All tongues and tribes will know him as Lord. That the Jews are not going to get some special treatment. They're going to have to turn to Messiah too. And if that's not clear in verse 6, he makes it really clear in the next three verses. In verse 7 it says, So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So friends, this is a pretty remarkable scene. You got John the Baptist in the Jordan baptizing people. And just to start off, he's kind of crazy looking. He's got camel hair. He's probably just all over the map. I mean, just a different looking dude. And so some of his, his fellow Jews are coming to be baptized, including some of the religious leaders. And how does he respond, right? Does he say, praise the Lord. Mission accomplished. Thank you, Jesus. No. He says, you scumbags. Like, who told you? What are you doing here? I mean, it's unbelievable, right? I mean, why would he respond this way? I mean, if you're convicted that you need to be baptized and, and God's moving in your heart and you come up to me after the service and you're like, Michael, thank you for your word. I want to be baptized. I promise you, I'm not going to look at you and go, you make me sick. You viper. It's not going to happen, all right? So what's going on with John? What, what's the deal? But see, John is he's warning them. He's being crystal clear that this is not some religious badge they can sew on. It's not a religious token they can collect. That this is a baptism of repentance. And this baptism of repentance, they are being told, told to turn from the very system that they think that makes them right with God. He's telling them, throw your patches in the fire. Take your trophies and put them in the trash because they're nothing. They're nothing. Whew, man, this is a big deal. He's not calling them to some slight course correction, right? This is a 180. It's a hard turn. And this message goes out and it deeply impacts and convicts some in the crowd, leading them to kind of a dialogue with John that we find in verses 10 through 14. It says, and the crowds were questioning him, saying, then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. And some soldiers are questioning him, saying, well, what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. So John is saying, he's not just calling them to repent from their way of thinking. He's calling them to repent from their way of living, to change their futile way of living. And he says that this true repentance will be displayed through a change of action. And he gives some ways that this repentance is fleshed out in, in their daily lives. He speaks to issues of generosity and integrity and honesty and contentment from the average Jewish Joe to the Roman soldier in his midst. And what I find interesting about these verses 
As, as I sat back and I looked at them, one of the things I found interesting that's not explicit, but I think it's obviously there, is that these people who are coming to John and asking him these questions, and these people who are looking to be baptized, they recognize that something is wrong with them. They recognize that they are not what they ought to be. They recognize that deep down inside, there is a brokenness. There is a guilt that exists. And this knowledge of of brokenness and guilt is really something that exists in all of us. And we can deny it. We can suppress it. We can ignore it. We can rationalize it, but the one thing we cannot do is remove it. We can't remove it. And the beauty of the gospel is that it is a message of truth that speaks directly to our brokenness while simultaneously being a message of grace that speaks to the only remedy of our brokenness. It speaks to the truth of our brokenness, but it also speaks to the remedy to our brokenness. As Tim Keller writes, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. In many ways, the crux of the gospel is you are far worse than you think. And you are far more loved than you can possibly imagine. And there is great power in that. John says you need to repent. And while the fruit of repentance will be a transformed life, the root of that repentance is the kindness and the love of God that transforms us from the inside out. And this leads us to verse 15. Because the people are amazed. It says, now while the people were in a state of expectation, the ancient historian Josephus says that 40 people in the first century claimed to be Messiah. 39 of them were wrong, Okay. But they're in a state of expectation, and we're all wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, the Messiah. John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So this is a time of great messianic expectation. They're looking for Messiah. They see John. He's baptizing. He's different. He's unique. He seems special. I wonder if he's the Messiah. And they ask me, he says, not a chance. Not a chance. I'm a servant of a greater one who's coming, and he's not going to baptize with water. He's bringing the real stuff. He's baptizing with the Holy Spirit and fire. Which brings up an obvious question of what, is holy, what does it mean to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire? Luckily for you, while there's some disagreement, I have the correct interpretation right in front of me. <laughs> I think that what is clear is that the baptism that Jesus brings will be one that is a combination of blessing and judgment. It's a combination of blessing and judgment. You see, the scriptures teach that all who have believed upon Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins 
have been baptized by the Spirit. Ephesians 1 talks about it being sealed with the Spirit. We are indwelt with the Spirit, the Spirit of life that gives us eternal life. And this baptism of the Spirit is a one-time event that happens at our moment of belief when we are justified. And for some, this is like some incredibly emotional moment. And you know where you were when it happened, when you were, when it was, who you were with, the song that was playing, the preacher that was preaching, the color of the, of the couch you were sitting on. You remember every detail of that moment. Others of you, you have no idea when it happened. And let me give you a little secret. That's okay. That's absolutely okay. The fact that you don't know when it happened, but you know, what, you, know you believe, means that you know that it happened. Does that make sense? 1 Corinthians 12 says that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so those who believe have been baptized by the Holy Spirit that will stay with us through all eternity. But what about fire? Well, the baptism of fire refers to judgment. And I think you can see that from the context of the passage. And one of the great ironies as I reflected upon this passage is that when Jesus came, or in Jesus' coming, we have the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. And coming with it, though, is the greatest depth of division the world will ever know. Both are true. It's the greatest act of love that will result in a division that extends into eternity between those who've been baptized by the Spirit and received forgiveness and those who have not. And this reality actually creates another sobering, except I think beautiful aspect of the gospel, which is the fact that all humanity will ultimately glorify God. Now, not all will be saved, but all humanity will glorify their creator, either as trophies of grace, displaying his unfathomable love, or as objects of wrath, displaying his righteous judgment. No one has an option as to whether or not they will glorify God. The issue is how. Will it be as those who are baptized by the Spirit or as one who is baptized by fire? And finally, in verses 18 through 20, Luke kind of sums up the ministry of John the Baptist. We're going to look at the baptism of Jesus next week where John's involved. And he shows up one more time in Luke chapter 7. But besides that, John really disappears. He's really gone. And in verse 18, it says, So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. So it's pretty fascinating that scholars believe John only baptized for about a year. His ministry was about one year. Before he gets arrested by Herod Antipas, who has taken this girl named Herodias, 
who is not only his niece, but his sister-in-law. So chew on that one for a minute, right? And so John calls out his sin, and Herodias will ultimately call for his head. And after spending 30 years in the wilderness and one year in ministry, he spends approximately two years in prison before he is beheaded. And so as we close our time this morning and really kind of close this section on this fascinating figure of John the Baptist, I really see three things that we can take away that that really apply to us from his life. Number one, John is a model of ministry. He is a model of ministry. He preached about the problem of sin. He boldly proclaimed about news about the Savior who came to conquer sin. And he willingly got out of the way so that the true hero, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, could be the one that people follow. And you see, no matter who we are or where we are, those three things apply to us. We are to be honest about sin and its devastating consequences. We should be honest about it. And I'm not saying we need to be ugly to people, but we need to be honest about it. Because here's the deal. The gospel makes no sense apart from sin. It makes no sense. From why we see the wor- why, why the world is the way it is to why we need redemption, why we need forgiveness, why we need a substitute, to the purpose of the incarnation and the resurrection, these are all tied to the fact that sin has entered us, sin has entered our world, and that God has come to redeem and restore it. So, this, so sin is integral to the gospel because the good news of grace makes no sense apart from it. And so John was clear about this problem of sin. He was clear about the Messiah who came to take away sin, and he was willing to get out of the way, to humbly get out of the way. And so in that regard, he is a model of ministry for us to follow. Second, John is a model of sacrifice. He's a model of sacrifice. Like I said, he's not a foreigner. This guy is an insider. His dad is a priest. He's an insider who became an outsider that spoke prophetically against the religious establishment. But he had the pedigree to live the high life. And yet he trades it in, right? He could have been in the religious country clubs, but instead he chooses the wilderness. He could have been covered in priestly robes, but instead he's covered in camel's hair. He could have dined on the finest cuisine of the day, but instead he's sustained on locust and honey. And the question is why? Why would he do that? Because that was the life that God had called him to. That was his mission, and it involved sacrifice. One of my great privileges at Wayside is I get to oversee our missions and outreach. And so as part of that, one of the things I get to do and try to do is I Skype with one of our missionaries every week or two around the world. 
And so in a few days, I'm set to Skype with one of our missionaries who serves as a doctor and a church planner in Indonesia. And he and his wife have three young kids. And they left his comfortable practice here in the hill country and moved completely around the world to set up shop in Indonesia, which also happens to be the most populated Muslim country in the world. And the reality is that life is hard over there. It's hard. And it involves tremendous sacrifice, but they know that's exactly where God wants them. And not all of us are called to go to Indonesia. Not all of us are called to be missionaries, but all of us are called to sacrifice. There is no Christian life apart from sacrifice of some sort. And yet the beautiful thing is that it is in that sacrifice where we realize that the reward of walking in obedience and intimacy with the will of God is a greater blessing and a greater reward than anything we've given up to do it. One of my favorite quotes is from a Cuban evangelist, B.G. Lavastida. You've probably heard me say it before. And he says there's three great paradoxes in the Christian faith. He says you must give in order to receive. You must let go in order to possess, and you must die in order to live. And I think he's exactly right. And John the Baptist is a model of this. He is a model of sacrifice. Finally, John is a model of faithfulness. He's a model of faithfulness. I mean, think about it. He's your classic second fiddle, right? He's the guy in the shadows. He's the lead blocker, the one eclipsed by the brighter sun. He's a one-hit wonder. He's big for a while. But then his disciples, well, they start to leave him. His ministry, well, that starts to, kind of starts to fade. And he goes from everybody coming out to see him in the Jordan to nobody coming to see him, really, because he's awaiting death in prison. And you know what John says? Good. Good. For he must increase and I must decrease. See, what truly matters in the end is not the size of one's following, bank account, influence, even one's impact or legacy. I think what matters is the depth of one's faithfulness. The depth of one's faithfulness. We don't always get to choose the context of our lives or our ministry. You didn't get to choose where you were born. And I'm well aware that many of the greatest pastors in the world, they serve in some of the smallest churches. And many of the most faithful saints in the world, they serve in a place where no one knows their name. But God does. God knows their name. Because if you are only interested in the applause of man, then that's all you will ever get. It's all you'll ever get. And that's not worth it. The depth of faithfulness of John is something that he models for us. Because we don't get to choose our context, but we do get to choose our faithfulness in the midst of that context.
and where God's placed us. So may we be a people that model a ministry of humility that points others to Jesus. May we be a people that live sacrificially for the mission of Jesus. And may we be a people who grow every day in our faithfulness to Jesus. And in doing so, maybe we can become forerunners. Not for the Messiah, but for all those who might come to know Messiah through our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We're overwhelmed by your goodness. We are overwhelmed by your grace. And the reality is that we have nothing to offer you. And God, you created us to know you. And the reality is that we have all turned, that we have all turned from you. We have gone the wrong way. And God, your word calls that sin. And the result of that sin is something so far greater than we could ever imagine. It is a separation from our holy God. It is death when we were created for life. And the reality of that brokenness just bubbles up inside of us and we know it's there. And God, you were perfectly able and righteous and good and you could have been able to say, you know what, you blew your chance. I'm moving on. But you didn't move on, God, you came near. You came near. And Lord Jesus Christ, you left heaven and came to earth. And you took on flesh as the son of David and the son of God, the Messiah, the Christ. And you lived a perfect life on this earth. No, no sin touched you. And you willingly went to the cross where you died a death that you did not deserve, that we deserved in your place. But you took the sin of the world upon yourself as the Lamb of God. Because John's mission was to pave a way and your mission was to come and die. That we might have life. And Jesus, you raised from the dead on that third day, conquering death, conquering sin, inviting us into eternal life by faith. If we will turn to you. And God, the fact is that many of us drift. Even those who know you, God, we drift. And you are calling us to turn from our sin and to turn and follow you. And God, I pray if there's anyone here who's never come to you in faith, never seen you with spiritual eyes, and that you are truly who you say you are, the Son of God, the one who takes away our sin. God, I pray that you would stir in their heart and that they would come to know you as Lord, as the Christ. God, I thank you for this church, this gathering of your people. And God, I pray like our brother John, we would be those who model a ministry of humility, 
that we would engage sacrificially in your mission. And God, that we would walk faithfully wherever you have us, knowing that in the end, the only applause that matters is the only one is you. Only what you can give. So tune our hearts to you, that we might glorify you. And we pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.